The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. That was really quite a ride. Permission to come aboard. Granted, sir. You know, you did a wonderful job. Thank you. This way, Ambassador. That was a nice piece of flying, Mr. Chekhov. Thank you, sir. Captain James T. Kirk, Ambassador. Welcome aboard the Enterprise. Thank you, Captain. I trust the Council sessions went well. Not at all, Captain. I'm afraid we didn't accomplish a thing. That's disturbing. The Federation credit system is collapsing on planet after planet. Credits aren't worth the same from one planet to the next. Resupplying consumables in certain sections of the quadrant has become difficult where the value of the credit has been devalued. Yes, but it's more than that. The planets with viable economies can hold their own, but others less fortunate are falling into economic ruin and will soon be abandoned. How well we know that. The Enterprise has assisted in the evacuation and relocation of two Federation colonies so far. Really? The Council debated for over three months and came up with no solutions. And we won't meet again for another six months. I am not hopeful. Our Klingon visitor pointed out abandoned planets are ripe for the plucking. Yes, by the Klingons or the Romulans. So, we have economic chaos, failing worlds. We must find a solution. Otherwise, I'm afraid the Federation will not exist much longer. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, February 12, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today where we will be giving you some economic food for thought. There's a little play on words there. You'll find out what I'm talking about later. If we can get to it, we're going to talk a little bit about banning already banned handguns in town. But the main theme of, of, of the show today is going to be economic. And I think we want to talk about a few things. Uh, I want, you know, to make a point, the global market is the only market. I'm going to make a, a strong case for why that is so and why you cannot talk about protectionism and thinking that you can cut yourself off from the world. And talking about some totally misconceptions that the labor movement tends to ignore entirely. But first, our main theme for the show, which I guess is the overall writing theme, shovel-ready economics. Are you ready for it? Oh boy, get out those shovels. Uh, oh, by the way, 519-661-3600 is the number to call if you want to join in, in the conversation or email us at justwritechrw at gmail.com. You can also visit the website chrwradio.com or see our complete archives at www.justrightmedia.org. So, shovel-ready economics. Remember, can you remember the first day you heard that term? You know, w w when after hearing both the Stephen Harper government here in Canada and the Obama government in the U.S. using the same meaningless term, shovel-ready, uh, to indicate which projects would get the government bailout, their, their government bailouts. Uh, suddenly the nature of that shovel became kind of clear to me. I think we're about to be buried in it. I'm going to see this shovel being used to fill the economic black holes created by the downturn while trying to bridge many holes in logic, and I guess you need a shovel to do that. London Free Press, February 709, that amazing headline, I think that was last week, Monday, 
129,000 jobs lost in Canada last month. And that means the month of January. That's one month's recorded losses. Now, that's what the headline said. But the, didn't, that total didn't agree with the stuff that was in the article. The article offered the following stats. Ontario, 71,000 jobs disappeared, mainly in the manufacturing sector. British Columbia, 35,000 jobs. Quebec, 26,000 jobs. Now, if you add that up, you're already up to 132,000, not the 129, as the, as the headline indicates. But the article notes that almost all of the lost jobs were full-time in the private sector and adds that even the public sector didn't emerge unscathed, losing 42,000 jobs in January. Well, if you add that 42,000 to the other, now the total is up to 174,000 jobs lost. But, ah, employment and health care and social assistance rose by 31,000. So you never know it from what you're reading about our health care system and social assistance, but uh, you can reduce that again by taking it down 31,000 from 174, and you're back to 143,000 uh, jobs lost. So the, the stats in the body of the article did not match any of the stats or the single stat in the headline. You'll see that a lot because I think the headline writers do not actually read the articles or can't add. Um, as well, the labor force shrank by 29,000, meaning thousands of discouraged people had stopped looking for work, the article says. And then there were 14,000 more identifying themselves as self-employed. Now, the article does not say whether these were additional stats or inclusive stats, so I don't know whether they're included in those figures or additional, but, you know, any way you look at it. And one other interesting thing is that Canadians who did still have jobs were earning 4.8% more than they were a year ago. So if none of this adds up to you, you're not really alone. If this article demonstrates anything, it is that uh, those who seem to produce our statistics are not even really capable of adding and subtracting, let alone managing economies. And, you know, poor President Obama, I've been watching him now, this guy's clearly frozen in the headlights of the oncoming e economic train wreck that's coming our way. And apparently his solution to the problem is to move closer to that oncoming train so that we'll all be included in the wreck. And so today you're going to hear a first for me, at least something I've... <laughs> this is going to be a strange one for you. Uh, you know, you'll rarely hear me endorsing an editorial opinion by Eric Margolis that uh, appeared in the same day's free press as, uh, as the one I was just talking about. And... Uh, Basically, it's February 7th, time for America to get small. And it, uh, above the article was a picture of America's national debt clock in New York approaching the $10 trillion mark. And this is one of those rare moments where I agree with almost everything Margolis has said here, and I've, I've focused in on the key part of it, and it's, uh, this is just worth hearing. Writes Margolis, quote, Social unrest simmers across Europe as unemployment surges and government handouts fall sharply. European and Asian governments are deeply concerned that President Barack Obama's multi-trillion dollar economic rescue package may prove far worse than the sickness it is meant to cure. Politicians everywhere are panicking as voters demand they do something to keep their debt-driven economies running in high gear. But this is impossible. The debt bubble has burst. But politicians are afraid to tell voters the hard truth. The party is over, retrench, stop borrowing, cut spending, start saving, live smaller. Now Obama and his team of Democratic Keynesians 
hope to spend the U.S. out of deep recession by dishing out U.S. $2.2 trillion in aid and stimulus packages. Ottawa also plans massive deficit spending to placate voters and give the impression it is overcoming recession. Paris is being much more cautious, but Canada and France are in the best shape of the Western economies. Ottawa's planned spending binge will produce a huge debt hangover likely never to be repaid and a debauched Canadian dollar. All the impressive achievements of the past decade in making Canada's economy sound, which was, by, by the way, caused mostly by raising our taxes, will be thrown away by a supposedly conservative government. Massive deficit spending is like treating a poison victim with more doses of poison. The current crisis was caused by runaway borrowing by the Bush administration, individuals, hedge funds, and the unregulated shadow financial industry. Obama's remedy? Borrow U.S. $2.2 trillion more. Europeans are gravely concerned that Obama's spend fest eventually will ignite worldwide inflation, undermine the U.S. dollar, and raise U.S. interest rates. Since the U.S. runs on borrowed money, and, s and decline in the value of its currency will require higher interest rates to be paid to foreign investors to make up for their added risk. So Europeans have a well-justified horror of inflation, writes Margolis. The storm of inflation in the 1930s was the financial equivalent of the Black Death and led directly to fascism. Now actually, this is one of those points where I disagree with him. He's got the right symptom, but he got it backwards. Fascism led to inflation, you know, as witness our current circumstances. I've been talking about that for two years. It's, it's like saying, you know, CO2 causes heat, which is what the green movement's saying when it's the other way around, okay? So uh, it's actually fascism causes all of this, and socialism and government spending. It's the idea that precedes the act. But to continue, you know, putting that minor detail aside, quote, Europe fears the U.S. is stoking inflation and hopes its vast foreign debts, about U.S. $1.2 trillion to China and Japan alone, can be paid back in depreciated dollars. We've seen such financial chicanery before, and it leads to disaster. Well, of course it does. Think about how Japan and China would feel if you're depreciating your dollars so that when you pay back the money we lent you that was worth, say, a billion dollars and you're going to pay us back in value, say half a billion, we're not going to like that very much. We're either going to demand a more money or, or some, some sort of compensation or, you know, that's, that's what been the very thing that has caused nations to go to war with each other in the past. And writes Margolis, quote, as one involved for nearly 50 years in business and investments, my advice to the youngest president is to tell Americans to patiently accept a long period of hardship and hangover tighten their belts, and start living within their means. The best way to stimulate an ailing economy is to cut taxes. I, I'm falling over in my seat here as I'm reading this, but let people decide how to spend their money. Washington and Ottawa's plans for, a new, for new bridges and daycare will, will win, win votes, but won't revive the economy. Japan tried this and failed. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt launched mass social welfare schemes in the 1930s similar to the ones Obama is proposing today. Roosevelt's New Deal may have stayed off popular revolution, but it did very little for the economy. It took goading Japan into war to end the Depression. Let's hope Obama does not intend to follow this example in Afghanistan." End quote. And I'm going to contrast this. Now you think that's the first time. Now I'm going to disagree with someone who I usually <laughs> agree with. And there's this very disappointing commentary written by someone who's been the topic of conversation on this show on several occasions, including the, our last show. 
and that is Ezra Levant. Now, I may have supported his right to speak freely, but I find myself lamenting many of the inconsistent and actually poorly reasoned arguments he continues to make, either in the name of free speech, which I've already criticized on past shows regarding his uh, Human Rights Commission stand, or as now, in the name of so-called conservatism. His arguments, I think, are utterly destructive to freedom and capitalism, and on matters of fundamental principles, which are, by the way, not just abstract ideas that have nothing to do with reality, it's actually the opposite. Whenever you compromise, you lose, you do not gain. Yet in a February 4th National Post article shockingly titled, In Defense of Harper's Budget, Levant writes, quote, Perhaps the most important reason why conservatives shouldn't be too, too depressed by this budget is that it doesn't create any new permanent government programs that will continue to drain the Treasury for generations to come. True conservatives balk at such things as government-subsidized housing or loan guarantees to the auto sector. But Canada's right is all right has already tried a purist conservative party and it was called the reform party and it kept losing elections. Party members voted to inter it and build a broader electoral coalition making the strategic choice to moderate policy in return for a chance at power. This budget fails the test of conservative ideological purity but 10 years of the reform party experiment has taught conservatives that holding the liberals at bay while making modest incremental, incremental gains is the right decision, end quote. Now, in, you know, in these few sentences, Levant has perfectly described, at least the way I look at it, why conservatism has already had its obituary written, as Ayn Rand so astutely observed half a century ago. Th that opinion was basically pure pragmatism at the total cost of freedom expediency for power. You know, we won't burden citizens with permanent spending programs. We'll burden them with a permanent debt that will never be repaid, by the way. You know, I instead of a principled conservative party, Levant celebrates the conservative quote-unquote coalition, which is subject to all the same risks and consequences that the nearly forced upon us liberal NDP bloc coalition would have had. It's all the same thing, really, just in a slightly narrower arena of so-called conservatives. And talk about giving up on the so-called uh, purist conservative party before it even gets out of the birth canal, for heaven's sakes. Ten years is too long to make a case? Good grief. Two elections tops, eh? And you have to, if you don't win, then you might as well give up. Oh, my God. You think the NDP did that? Uh, you know, the, the ideological enemies you face are not thinking that way. The NDP never gives up, and all of its policies have been adopted by liberals and conservatives alike as Mr. Levant is demonstrating to us in no uncertain terms. And yet they have never been elected to a majority government. Go figure, eh? So for conservatives like Levant, losing the cause of your objective is okay just so long as you're in power, even if you end up doing the very things you're not supposed to be there like, to not do. You know, we should have had an election. Harper would have had his majority. And then you suppose that Levant would be writing this same essay. Sad to say, I've got no reason to believe that a majority conservative government would act any more conservative than the way it is right now. And then I wonder what essay Levant would be writing in that case. So I guess the question is, what does cause unemployment and economic upheaval? And that's what we'll be zeroing in on after this very quick break. A seafloor mining project is almost ready to go into operation. Now, the pan-Caribbean government did have some misgivings but I think we've won them over. I hear you just came back from Christchurch. Yes. 
a little skiing on Mount Cook. <laughs> You're lucky. We had to cancel our trip to the Alps this year because of the student protests in France. I thought the neo-Trotskyists were going to put a stop to that. They're not having any more luck than the Gaullists did. Europe is falling apart. Well, at least we don't have to worry about that kind of thing here. Don't count on it. done it now. You forgot to plug in, didn't you? I saw that last night. And when Charlie saw it, he said, he said, there's a bloke and have a flat battery in the morning, he said. I believe he saw the plug was out. Why the devil didn't he put it in? Demarcation, Stan. Demarcation? What the blazes is demarcation? Not his job. He mustn't go doing work that belongs to other people, must he? I thought we workers were all solid together. Squire, you need educating. He's in a different union. He's in the amalgamated. We're in the general. Well, what's the point in having two unions? Blimey, when was you born? How would we go on for wage claims? The amalgamated gets a rise, so the general puts in for one. If the general gets it, then the amalgamated starts all over again. So it goes on, you see, like leapfrog. Otherwise, we wouldn't none of us get a rise, would we? You see. I hate to mention a horrible thing like work, but would you two mind getting all trucks out on the job? And welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. I'm Bob Metzen. 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join us on our conversation today. You know, the labor union, of course, labor unions in general, the labor movement, I guess. I'm just looking at a headline here. <laughs> Free Press, I think this was yesterday, no, a couple days ago. By Canadian policy demanded. No, yesterday, February 11th. And, of course, uh, picture of uh, CAW, Ken Luenza looking there and U.S. steel workers. But um, the question I think that begs asking is what exactly does cause unemployment? You know, all our politicians are just screaming and wondering and arguing amongst themselves, and yet the case has been demonstrated over and over again. So once again, throughout today's show, I will rely on the aid of Spanish-Mexican economist Faustino Balve whose articulate and blessedly brief synopses are so well-focused and clearly understandable. I talked about him in the past and did a little background on him, if you want to check that out on our archives. But he writes that, uh, and by the way, he wrote back in the era 1956, so it's not as though, you know, he can say, well, he's just picking and choosing. These are very immutable principles. And he, and, he, and he argues that the two beliefs that uh, capitalism always involves period of gen- periods of general unemployment or that, quote, unemployment is chronic are demonstrably false, he, ar- he argues. And he writes that, quote, both theories, if we have, as we have seen, contradict the facts and very essence of the econ- economy of free enterprise. There is no unemployment in normal times, much less during a period of prosperity. There is unemployment when there is a crisis, and that sentence he italicized. And he explains what a crisis is and that there are only three things that cause a crisis. And he says, here they are, one, two, three. Okay, a crisis occurs when, one, the action of pressure groups renders production unprofitable by raising costs above market prices. And I think we're seeing that today in the auto industry. 
the pressure groups being the unions, various labor movements, left-wing groups, all raising their wages until they have done what we per, you know, proverbially call pricing themselves out of the market. And so that, render, that creates unemployment. The second reason is that there's also unemployment when the fiscal policies of the government prevent the increase in the accumulation of capital goods from keeping pace with, and if possible, surpassing the increase in the population and thereby raising the general standard of living, okay? So what is the government doing now? They are destroying our capital goods, our money. They're spending it all in advance, and we aren't able to save that money for what it will be needed for. So the fiscal policies of our governments right now are going to prevent the increase in the accumulation of capital and capital goods because they're basically taking it away and handing it to the, to the people who are currently out of jobs, all to help them, of course. And the third one, another cause of unemployment, is nationalism, and it's corollary economic protectionism and migration barriers, which place difficulties in the way of the normal worldwide distribution of goods and services. So those, those are the three ways he identifies. And of course, we hear that a lot now. You know, the nationalism, you want to hear what that sounds? Sounds like, quote, by Canadian policy demanded, headline, free press, February 11th. That's nationalism. Um, generally, self-interest disguised as nationalism, but it is uh, have the same effect on the rest of us. Balve then goes on to warn of the extreme dangers of Keynesian economics, which we covered in detail on a past show a few weeks ago, and where I concluded that if you want to know who is actually opposed to Keynesian economics, it was Lord Keynes himself. And that's no joke. If you want to check that out, uh, you know, check our archives just a couple of weeks ago, and you'll hear the whole story about how, wh why that's pretty much an immutable fact. Now, according to Keynes' doctrine, explains Balve, this is Keynes, this is the way he interprets Keynes. Keynes argues that unemployment is due to saving and has to be combated by resorting to every means to force those who have money to spend it, as if bringing money to the market had the magic power of raising up new plants and factories. I'm hearing that argument everywhere today. I'm hearing it made by the right, by the left, by the middle, by everyone. Oh, get out there and spend, folks. Spend some money. Spur the economy. That is actually pouring fuel on the fire. And, of course, you have to be careful what spending you're talking about it, but if you're just spending for the sake of spending and to, and to, you know, I don't think individuals really are almost even capable of doing that. Only a government could force that kind of spending because individuals just don't do it. But I'm reminded of a time when people believed that the thing to do with a terribly sick person was to bleed them, you know. They cut some, some appendage and let the blood all come out, and that's just what this feels like exactly. You're hearing people on the traditional right and left, both, in, both you know, encouraging the public to get out and spend when they would otherwise restrain their spending. But in reality, explains Balve, the only effect of such a policy is to increase the price of goods and by the same token to reduce the standard of living. Where money is really needed is in production for the purchase of more machinery and equipment, the employment of more workers and the manufacturers of more goods for the market with the object of lowering the cost of living. That's your object, to lower the cost of living. And this is precisely what saving does, he says. He who saves his money does not keep it under a mattress as people did in the mercantilist era. He invests it to produce a profit or to yield interest. Either he puts it into real property or into mortgages and thereby favors the expansion of housing and the employment of construction workers. Or he invests it in, equi in equities and buys shares of productive enterprises, which are also thus enabled to expand. Or he lends it at interest to entrepreneurs, with the same result for the general well-being. 
Saving and capital accumulation, then, are the great factors making for an increase in the production and a consequent abundance of jobs and a lowering of prices. The liquidation of savings, the spending of money in the market in order to acquire consumption goods, has the opposite effect. The stagnation of production, a rise in prices, a diminution of the purchasing power of the general public, a slump, and consequently, mass unemployment. The Keynesian formula, therefore, leads to results that are exactly contrary to those it is aimed at attaining. And that was Balve speaking back in the mid-50s, and of course he's b been born correct many times. Some of the strange, um, what would you call them, concepts that people are talking about, you know, you hear, oh, we've got to jumpstart the economy. Jumpstart the economy. When you hear somebody say that, they 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 honestly don't know what they are actually talking about. Uh, you know, like this could apply to the Star Trek analogy that opened the show today. But uh, unless aliens from another world, completely detached from our own economy, were able to provide the energy that was actually needed to jumpstart our own, what our politicians are calling jumpstarting the economy is really a lot more like trying to jump your car with your already weak or dead battery. That's literally what they're asking us to do. So how many of you out there would expect that battery to get strong enough to run the car on its own if you're using the same battery to jumpstart the car? So nobody? Oh, gee, that's funny because there's a lot of people who sure believe this approach can work with the economy. Of course, the economy is always a single entity. And again, unless we can talk about aliens that we're able to trade with who actually have a completely detached source of energy on their planet from us, we can't really talk about jump-starting anything. All the energy we have on our planet comes from our planet. Another one you hear is, uh, and well, this is a good one, you know, well, we, we, we have to have a nonpartisan approach to the economy. You know, don't, don't get partisan now because uh, we have, we got to take care of the economy. We've got to spend all that money. So, uh, you know, I ask, how is that possible? If one side says spend and the other side says don't spend, how do you turn that into a nonpartisan approach? Well, I think you do what Obama did. You spread it around. You try to please everyone. Spend here and there, tax cuts here and there, promises of a green, prosperous future, you know, based on green, and a whopping deficit everywhere, of course. And, uh, you know, this is a president who is visibly lost when speaking about his government spending plans, and it's beginning to show more and more. But the point to be made is that these two different approaches to the economy, they're not different because of partisan politics. They're partisan because they are different, okay? It's the other way around. The left is always doing that. The call to be nonpartisan is a demand to end the debate, okay? That's what it really means. When somebody says, I want to be nonpartisan, they mean, I don't want to argue with you. I don't want to have a difference of opinion. I'm right, you're wrong, and we're not going to argue about it. So let's be nonpartisan. Now, here's the other one. I hear this from Jerry McCartney, London Chamber of Commerce. I kind of like this term. Skeptimistic is a word he likes to use when he was talking about the government bailouts, and I heard him saying, you know, that he's skeptimistic. He goes, I hope it works now, even though it's never worked before, okay? You know, what was that definition of insane that used to go around in popular circles? You know, if you keep trying something over and over again and it doesn't work, but you keep doing it, isn't that the definition of insane? <laughs> well, it doesn't seem to impact upon politicians and political solutions to economic issues. And you have to, you know, government spending represents a non-consensual violation of individual rights. You know, I often wonder, if only we would apply the morality of consent to economics the same way we do to sex issues, you know? Rape is, is literally defined 
by its non-consensual fundamental. A voluntary sex act can be part of love, or just lust, but it's not illegal, and it shouldn't be. But an involuntary sex act is properly called rape and is properly treated as a serious criminal offense. So the question is, why doesn't society apply the principle of consent to all social re, you know, relationships, particularly economic ones? But, uh, of course, economic rape of citizens is government policy everywhere. And the, the fifth one that people, I've talked, we've talked about it a lot, I'm not going to focus on this, but I think we've got to look at that green agenda. It's a disaster in the making, and I cannot separate what has been going on in the green movement from the economic collapse that we're having today. I, I see them directly linked that the forces have been in place for quite a while. Governments are investing in green technologies that are unsupportable by a real economy, that meaning a free economy. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to be buying any used battery cars on the market if they start coming out. And we're hearing more and more stories as to all this green power is actually producing dirty power. And uh, we're going to find in 10 years that all these green technologies are going to be, uh, you know, completely backfiring on us. And then, of course, there's the big argument. Uh, fair trade, not free trade. C.A.W. Rep. Tim Curry, like all labor monopolists, argues that what we need is fair trade, not free trade, which gives different countries different advantages over, you know, in his case, Canadian labor, or in the case of U.S. labor, American labor, you know, because they all are talking the same, out of the same tune. But the grand irony of this argument was that if everything was fair, meaning equal, then we wouldn't have any need to trade, would we? And this is the joke. It's the very fact of unfairness that causes trade to take place in the first place. Inequity is the fuel of trade. Comparative advantage is the economic term given to this phenomenon for those interested in pursuing the economic theory. And another grand irony for Canadians is that for a long time Canadian labor had an unfair advantage. And that was through cheap labor made possible by a cheap dollar relative to the American dollar. We had an unfair advantage relative to our U.S. counterparts and, uh, you know, U.S. labor reps have been on record complaining about their brothers to the north more than once in the past. Now, if unions were really concerned about job security, they'd happily lower the wages of their members because that's the road to job security. And all trade, by definition, has to be voluntary. Forced trade is involuntary and is more properly referred to as theft. And under theft, even though there may be an exchange of property, okay, or money taking place, you just can't call that a trade. And this brings me to Faustino Balve again, explaining from in his chapter what economics is not about, which is a fascinating concept in itself. And he explains that the economic process is an integral and continuous whole in which production, distribution, and consumption are essentially concurrent and coincident, so that it is not even intellectually possible to focus attention on any one of these phases to the exclusion of the others, especially since credit has become generally available he, produces, he who produces anything is in the very process already dis distributing what is produced among the human factors of production, and the latter are consuming their respective shares, and so on successively. So these three things, production, distribution, and consumption, are all phases of the same cycle which repeats itself but never identically. The economic process is a succession of acts of production, distribution, consumption, not in the form of concentric circles, but in the form of a spiral. The economic process is living and dynamic. It never repeats itself exactly. It always moves to a new position. Kind of reminds me of that old saying, you know, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself literally, but it always rhymes, doesn't it? Now, 
the longing, this is a fascinating comment, the longing for a condition of static and beatific tranquility is essentially reactionary. It is in conflict with the very essence of economic life and indeed of human life in general. It seeks, in the words of Heinz poem, to turn the world into a paradise, but it turns it instead, to use Abraham Lincoln's apt expression, into a hell by choking off initiative and putting creativity in a straitjacket. The hallmark of all attempts to achieve economic stability is always rationing and coercion. <laughs> oh boy, those are the two things that government operates on, our healthcare system, our education system, everything. It is essentially static and quantitative, whereas man's faculty of choice as exercise in regard to economic goods is essentially dynamic and qualitative. The essential principle of the economic process is not equilibrium and equality, but disequilibrium. Equilibrium would bring about economic stagnation and death. Disequilibrium is the motive force that keeps the economy alive and progressive. Economic life is not a condition of peace and security. It involves daring and adventure. It's kind of like the weather, eh? The sun keeps uh, the air moving. It's the heat constantly. It's always uh, a disequilibrium around the earth. And if it weren't for that, the earth would have a constant climate and everything would be kind of dead looking. And he argues that there's no such thing as exact economic calculation as some mathematical economists have maintained because the economic data that are at our disposal always refer to the past and we do not know what tomorrow will bring. And of course, that's the problem politicians are facing now. Eh? Every economic activity is a bill presented to the future, and there's always a question or not of whether it will be paid. One could say of economic life what Gothi says at the end of the second part of Faust. Alles vergänglich ist nur ein Gleichnis. That is to say, all we see before us passing, sign and symbol is alone. Economics is not about anything that can be expressed in mathematical terms. Its domain is rather that of imagination and invention, of adventure into the unknown, of a hazardous enterprise that is not for the cowardly, end quote. And that's Faustino Balve. Sounds a little Star Trek to me, complete with the whole part about the enterprise. Going to take a break now, and we'll be back on the other side of these messages. That's paradise. We have no need or want, Captain. It's a true Eden, Jim. There's belonging and love. No wants, no needs. We weren't meant for that, none of us. Man stagnates if he has no ambition, no desire to be more than he is. We have what we need. Except a challenge. You don't understand, Jim. But you'll come around sooner or later. Canada. You're probably thinking, I'm an American. You think Americans don't know a lot about Canada. And you're right, actually. We don't know very much. In fact, I was reading a study in the paper back in New York City. They did a study. Apparently, 10% of high school freshmen in New York City could not point out Canada on a map, believe it or not. And it was a map of Canada. And that is hard to believe. Canadians are funny people. You know, like, you refer to the United States when you say, like, I'm going to go to, what do you call us? The States. Now, why do you call it? We don't call you the provinces. Why are you calling us the states? You know what we call you? You don't come up. I'll be honest with you. You're not. You're not. You're not. 
I hate to, I hate to say it. We, no, we love you. We love you. God knows. But, you know, it's just we got other things to worry about, right? We got a war on. There's other things that are taking place. Other things like by American, by Canadian. You know, you can hear this on both sides of the border right now. It's amazing that anyone from a, from a labor movement would even utter such words. And uh, if they don't recognize it, trade, and the more of it you get, the better it is for all, everyone, especially labor. You know, protectionism is the slow choke of economic death. And you, you wonder, what is that word about protectionism? Protection from what? Has anybody ever asked that? Well, from the marketplace on which we depend upon for our survival. <laughs> That's what they're protecting you from. And the protection is for them. For some reason, people think that by having, you know, being a, a, a bigger person in a smaller market is somehow better than being a smaller person in a bigger market, even though that smaller person may make more money. It's a, sort of a self-defeating logic, really. Uh, you know, we don't want to protect ourselves from that. And then who, who do you want to protect yourselves from? Well, from consumers in your own country. That's what protectionism is about. Force those consumers to pay higher prices so that you can live more comfortably, even when there are other people in your own country willing to do that job for less. Because let's face it, we're not talking about wages that are at minimum wage or anything like that. CAW Union supports Canadian money going to Canadians only, and, and says uh, Union Rep. Lowenza, it's not protectionism, it's common sense, he says. Now, you know, on the issue of government money being spent on domestic, let's say, if you're, depending on whether you're talking U.S. or, or Canada, it, make, it seems to make sense from the point of view of the government. Gee, we should only spend money on our own people because we're trying to create jobs for them. But the irony is the jobs aren't created that way. <laughs> and that you could even say, for example, spend American dollars in India or Japan and create American jobs by doing that. But they don't want to think that way. You see, that's not the way governments think, because they don't think at all. Governments are not voluntary institutions. They don't have to earn that money that they get. And that is the fundamental problem and why you can never make a statement like government should be run like a business. It's not a business, can't be run like one. If government were run like a business, it would have to be voluntary. And that's the, that, that defeats the whole purpose of government. Now... You know, unions themselves are an unfair element of the labor market, a monopoly barring cheaper labor from their company or, or, or their sector of the economy. That's basically what they are, a monopoly. And when, where, where most non-unionized workers must compete, unions have managed to legislate themselves, quote-unquote, requiring government, of course, uh, to a level outside of the real market and thus end up, as the old saying goes, pricing themselves out of the marketplace. Now, the belief that there's such a thing as a local market, you know, that's completely false to begin with. There's only such a thing as a global market. And again, Faustino Balbe explains, and I quote from him. He says, even the most cursory perusal of any treatise on commercial geography should suffice to convince one that there has always been a world economy constituting a unified totality. No matter how superficially we survey the daily life of any person, even the least civilized, he's talking about anybody, even somebody you might think is alone in a jungle, away from all of our economic activities. He says, we shall find that he continually, and without even being aware of it, depends on the products of dif distant lands. We need hardly mention the machinery produced in the great industrial countries like England, France, Belgium, Germany, and the United States, and dispersed all over the world or the perfumes of Grasse, or the silks of Lyon, which are used by elegant ladies everywhere, or the woolens of Australia, which clothe the middle and the upper classes of every country. Remember, this, is, this was written in the 50s. 
Nor need we speak of products as local as coffee, tea, and tobacco, which are in universal use, or of the fine woods of the Orient and Central America, which adorn the homes of people in every latitude. In the houses of even the most humble inhabitants of the Orient, we shall find cooking utensils and sewing machines manufactured in Europe and the United States, just as we find in the Occident cloves and spices of Oriental providence and countless knick-knacks from China and Japan. In a word, the true market is the world market. At the center of this market in the Middle Ages were the small Italian republics, especially those of Genoa and Venice, and the free cities of the Hasiatic League, as well as their neighbors, the Flemish ports, in particular that of Antwerp. It was here that the characteristic institutions of the world markets, the trade halls and the exchanges, as well as the peculiar forms of mercantile transactions involving operations at a distance and deferred delivery first came into being. Centuries before Socrates and Plato, Tyrian traders plied their fragile craft as far as the Atlantic coast of the Iberian Peninsula. Later, the Greeks and Phoenicians established trading posts along the Mediterranean littoral as far as the mouth of the Rhone, and the Romans, sailing beyond England, penetrated all the way to Ireland. The Tartars and the Mongols carried on commercial traffic from the Pacific to the Danube, where they continued as far as the Baltic and North Sea. From here, the Vikings carried their trade to the coasts of Africa, and apparently, as certain competent historians assure us, traversed the icy seas by way of Bering Strait to America. Thus, we find in the extreme orient the most distant products of the Occident, like steel blades from Toledo and the amber on the Baltic, and, the other hand, and on the other hand, the silks, brocades, rugs, jewelry, and perfumes of the Orient found their way as far as England and Sweden." End quote. And as if to emphasize Balbay's point, I see David Frum writes a, a, an editorial in the February 7th National Post called China and India in the Balance, the Protectionist Threat. And he writes that scary as this recession is for the developed world, it poses a terrible and lethal threat to the world's two biggest markets, of course, being China and India. Ominously, the anti-recession actions undertaken by the advanced countries may well aggravate the global trade collapse. Liberal economic commentators warn that the current downturn presents the gravest threat to global prosperity since the Great Depression. They are urging hyper-Keynesian spending in order to jolt the United States back into prosperity. And yet here is the party of the liberals repeating one of the very gravest policy errors of 1929 to 33, the turn to protectionism that plunged the world into a downward spiral of trade war. In the 1930s, trade war led to actual war, writes from here. You know, that reminds me of Bastiat's statement, when goods don't cross borders, armies will. <laughs> but of course, Fromm writes, our world is very different, of course, and big wars between major powers have gone seriously out of style. I, I don't know that I buy that, but he does warn that the internal stability of China and India cannot at all be taken for granted. And there were a lot of scary details in his article regarding that that I'm not going to go into detail with here today. But he concludes that, quote, with global leadership goes global responsibilities. Barack Obama is delighted to talk about global interconnectedness when the subject is war and peace. Will he understand that those global relationships matter at least as much when the subject is prosperity and poverty? More than the dialogue that so fascinates Obama, what the world needs most is trade, more trade. It's up to him to champion it for his own country's sake and the world's, end quote. So amen to that, except that as so far as we can tell today under the Obama administration, this approach to the crisis right now doesn't seem to have a prayer. <laughs> 
Well, as we now approach the uh, noon lunch hour, perhaps the thought of food is on your mind. And there appear to be interests who would like to see the government get involved a little more with our diets and uh, perhaps with an approach that should give us some economic food for thought. So we're going to take a quick break here for a smile, and when we come back, I'll tell you what that one's all about. I, I go out a lot. I love to go out. I go out for dinner quite a bit. and uh, I go out for dinner because, first of all, I want them to prepare a meal for me. I went out for uh, dinner the other night. I ordered a chicken fajita. You ever have one of these? Do you know what it is? I ordered it. They gave me one plate of tortilla shells and like five or six other plates with stuff to go in the tortilla shells. You know, nothing in the menu said, uh, some assembly required. This is food from Ikea. I think you can tell an awful lot about a country by what it eats for breakfast. See, we in Scotland, we like a fry-up. Bacon, sausage, eggs, beans, chips, whatever. Bring out your dead. We'll have it. So long, so long as it's deep-fried. But it's our way of saying to the rest of the world, it doesn't matter what you plan to do to us today, it's not nearly as bad as what we've just done to ourselves. We've eaten that. Now, you compare that to other breakfasts, like the French breakfast, the croissant. The little croissant. That is all I want. <laughs> that is all I will eat. Just a tiny piece of tiny, tiny piece of croissant. <laughs> and then I will have to lie down. <laughs> because I have eaten my croissant. <laughs> and I feel quite full. <laughs> it's not a breakfast, is it? It's a bit of pastry, for God's sake. <laughs> we put that on top of a meat pie. According to a uh, survey I heard about on, the, on some other radio stations earlier this week, uh, you know, the, a survey that was taken apparently by uh, either, I'm not even quite sure because I didn't get the details, but it has either to do with the Heart and Stroke Foundation or the Consumers Association and National Post, who actually took the survey, I'm not too sure, but the survey showed this, that the price of healthy food varies across this great land called Canada. And the survey reports that for almost half, 47% of Canadians eating healthy, fresh foods, such as fruit, vegetables, dairy, lean meat, fish, etc., it was too expensive. And um, apparently they compare something, for example, like a bag of brown rice, two nineteen in Toronto, $7.76 in Winnipeg, $11.99 in Rankin Inlet, according to some items that apparently appeared in the National Post, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm, I'll probably get to it later. But what was interesting, uh, also during this period, McDonald's profits jumped some 11% in the last quarter. Uh, interesting during a period when the rest of the economy is in recession. <clears throat> well, this is cause for concern, argue many lobby groups who'd like to see the government look into why this price of food varies so greatly from location to location. The president of the Consumers Association of Canada said he was stunned to see that price differentials like that exist, while, according to what I've heard thus far, the Heart and Stroke Foundation is also on board for a government study of price differentials with the aim of seeing if there's some kind of legislation that can be passed to correct the inequities. Kind of like the, the gas price thing when people find out that they're fluctuating radically. Now, 
this is this is really a silly reaction. I mean, shock that prices aren't equal in one city as compared to another. Well, when have they ever been? Everyone's got housing prices from one city to another. You know, there's this prevailing general belief that prices have only to do with what something costs to make, you know, plus a little profit to survive. But that has nothing to do with the price of any commodity. It's part of it. <laughs> you can't be there unless you're past that point. Uh, and that includes food. And it never did, never will. The principle's always simple. Prices are at the level that the market will bear. If you live in Beverly Hills, for example, the same people or same apple you might purchase there as opposed to one in southern Georgia, for example, would cost you many times the price of the Georgia apple. I remember one time on one of my many trips through Georgia uh, and during one of you know, those one-night stays in Georgia while you're on the I-75 heading south to Florida, uh, they've got some of the least, or did when I was there, had some of the least expensive food I'd ever eaten anywhere. Remember one time we stopped and uh, ordered a chicken meal for about three bucks. I expected a wing or two with some small fries. I got the whole chicken with baked potatoes and all the fixings and everything, as they say. And there's no way I could have eaten it. And, uh, you know, if we had known that, there were three of us at the time, we'd have only ordered one, and it would have sufficed for the three of us, and we had these three chickens there for, for nine bucks. Meanwhile, next door in Florida, restaurant price shock was awaiting us, especially after our Georgia experience, you know. It's kind of like the weather being minus 25 one day and plus 11 the next. But uh, prices have a lot to do with the economic environment you're in. If you live in a city with, say, a high percentage of professionals on high salaries and incomes, or a city like Ottawa where most government officials get paid well, you can pretty well expect prices of everything in that neighborhood to be more than the surrounding less affluent neighborhoods. There's a, there's a really important lesson to be learned from this, too. It tells you that successful producers and retailers sell to their market, whether that market is affluent or whether it is poor. Just, you know, more entrepreneurs have become millionaires by catering to the poor and lower income class and have become rich by catering to the affluent. That's just a fact. Supply and demand works in reverse as well. Let's face it, there's a greater supply of poor people than there are of rich people in relative terms, right? So selling goods at lower prices to higher volume markets will tend to produce greater profits than selling higher priced goods to lower volume markets on a macroeconomic scale. On, on, on an individual level, micro, it could be anything. You could make a lot of money as an individual, and that, that only makes sense. It also explains why companies like McDonald's, Walmart, and others who cater to mass marketing at the lowest possible price often do better uh, during hard times and times of comfort and easy prosperity. So, you know, if you look at it, the price of virtually every kind of identical good varies astronomically, depending on the market in which it's being sold and, and or produced, even. Even franchises and chains who have the same name, for example, have extraordinarily different prices, even in the same municipality, for example. I, I heard one uh, shopper uh, remark on a radio show the other day. He says, I, you know, I've learned to go to the Walmarts in the poorer neighborhoods because they've got the best prices, he says. And... And, uh, and that means of Walmart. It doesn't mean of other stores. It means if you go to the Walmart in the, uh, in the expensive neighborhood, the same gadget or same thing might cost you more than it will in the poorer neighborhood. Now, of course, it's a myth, I think, to, th to say that eating at fast food restaurants is uh, cheaper than cooking. It isn't really. Um, you can always cook cheaper yourself. But, of course, such restaurants are selling something more than just the food itself. They're selling convenience, which is really the major component of their product. 
and I think a, a large part of this is, is people's reluctance, uh, basically not to want to cook and not to want to have to get uh, their hands dirty and get in there and actually do the cooking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm one of those people myself, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, I don't talk about laziness without having some experience of it. <laughs> and if I can cut back on my necessity of cooking, I will do so. It's interesting. Uh, and then there are people like uh, Pam Colleen, who's a health journalist, and she said she saw red flags whenever she hears the name of lobby groups like the Heart and Stroke Foundation who are always uh, telling us to eat more fruit and vegetables. And there's a lot of nutritionists who are now saying that's just not right. You've got to be learning more about animal fats and food fats and things like that, which are mar- more part of the natural diet of uh, human beings in the past, certainly. And that all these, quote, healthy foods are relatively new to, uh, to humanity in some, some respects. The battle goes on on that food front, doesn't it? We keep hearing, uh, oh, this is good for you today, it's bad for you tomorrow. Well, I think what you really have to do is do the test yourself. What works with you? What makes you feel better? I mean, within reason. <laughs> you know, you can feel better injecting yourself with some pretty deadly stuff, too. But we're not talking about things like that. I don't have time today. We're running up at the top of the show now, so I'm not going to get to my next subject, which I had planned as an extra. We're going to talk a little bit about the handgun ban and that... Uh, uh, that uh, very symbolic gesture that City Hall is still put on the back burner. I think we'll talk about that again when we come back again next week, which I hope you will be enjoying us and joining us, uh, rather, next week when we return with another episode of Just Right. Until then, keep right, stay right, act right, and do right. Take care. We'll see you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be I love napping too. Uh, sometimes though, you ever have a nap where you do it by accident? You know, like you're, you've had a hard day, you're uh, watching the six o'clock news as you're lying on the couch, huh? You fall in one of those really deep three minute sleeps. You start dreaming you've been sleeping all night. You wake up, ah, I'm late for work! You sit back and you realize, hey, wait a second, I've been unemployed for a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs>